Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. For the first time ever, I think we both went to start. Normally, we sit here in silence, just looking at each other, waiting. Um, how, like someone is else, go Jersey Boys, you little musical superstar. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's been very fun and a very busy week. So yes, I think we've mentioned in the past couple of intros that I have been in a community theatre production of Jersey Boys here in Sydney. Um, when this goes to air, we will still have a second weekend of shows if anyone is interested. <laughs> um, but so yes, this past weekend, third, fourth, fifth, we had four shows and I don't even think I've told you, uh, this Michelle, I don't remember who I told because I did keep it a secret from a couple of friends who actually attended, uh, Friday's opening night performance. Did I? Okay. Um, Unfortunately, on the Thursday when we were there for our dress rehearsal, um, we all found out that someone in the ensemble cast had come down with COVID um, and was going to be missing all the performances, which is a huge shame. But I was asked to step into one of um, her little moments in the show. She had a few different little scenes with like a couple of lines and things. And the ones that I was asked to step into was actually a singing part. Um, so if anyone knows the show Jersey Boys, there's a scene sort of when the band like is like really together and they meet their producer and they're on a contract singing backup for other people. And so there's this backup medley with three different artists and the Four Seasons are singing backup as they're kind of working their way up in the industry. Um, and particularly for the bit that is uh, done by... Um, a female ensemble member. The character is Frankie Nolan. Um, the whole bit is that Frankie is better than her and can sing higher than her. So thankfully I wasn't too concerned about having to look good because the whole point is that she's not as good as Frankie Valley. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did get to perform that. I just kind of wung it um, a little bit on our Thursday rehearsal was like, ah, it'll be okay. And we sort of stepped in at the last minute. And then I had performed that bit in addition to everything else I do in the ensemble, um, on Friday's performance, Saturday matinee and evening and Sunday matinee. Um, and one of our best friends, Austin and his fiance Josie were attending on Friday night and I didn't tell them. And so they were very excited, um, as, you know, long time listeners know when we've told the story and everything, Michelle meeting, Michelle and I meeting, doing anything goes like Austin did those musicals with us as well. So we've done shows together for years and he, I haven't done a show for years. And so he came to see, um, the show and it was very exciting. And yeah, I didn't tell (laughs) that I had this extra bit. So hopefully everyone recovers and is back and it's back to normal programming for the second week. But really fun for you. I would hate to have rehearsed for so long. <laughs> it was fun, but I would, if it was me, yeah. I would hate to have rehearsed for months and then miss out on all the performances. Yeah. That would so suck. that is a real yeah. shame. Yeah. But yeah, but in saying all of that, it has been a very busy week. So I 
don't really have any recommendations. Well, you know what? Actually, I could do two um, if you wanted. Do you want sure. two? <laughs> I can give you two recommendations um, because I bought a book on Friday night when we were in London and I finished it yesterday and I already had another thing I was going to say. Oh, wow. So that way you lovely listeners still get two recommendations. You're making up mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Yeah. Should we do that? <laughs> yes. Totally. Okay. So the first thing that I was going to recommend was called Strong or is called Strong Female Character by Fern Brady. Um, so Fern is a stand-up comedian in the UK who I have seen on lots of different shows and stuff um really like her stuff and so I always like a comedic memoir like they're always on my radar of people who I like watching so it was always going to be on my radar but then I'm sure someone else in my book group recommended it as well um as being really really good so basically Fern Brady in this explores the fact that she has experienced a lot of mental health issues throughout her life, but actually also was undiagnosed as autistic for a lot of her life. And so Mm -hmm. there's obviously a blend there between realizing now which of those mental health issues were purely mental health, how much were related to being undiagnosed autistic. Um, And it really is just her talking you through her life, almost like chronologically, through the lens of this weird stuff that was happening to her and this weird this new information. yeah and so it starts with her having got the diagnosis and then sort of goes back to things um so it talks about obviously like neurodivergence but also being a working class woman from scotland um how that interplayed with a lot of things she explains how at one point like a doctor said to her you can't be autistic because you've had boyfriends and you make eye contact um so it sort of talks a lot about these I guess misconceptions around autism um mm. and stereotypes yeah and um all these things it's so much harder for women to get diagnosed is. because of all of those yeah things exactly well. so it yeah. brings in a lot of those stories. and she does bring in some research or like re- research she's done obviously of like this is why it's harder for women and stuff because because of her kind of mental health issues undiagnosed autism she had quite a rocky relationship with her parents and so was sort of chucked out of home before university started um and so during university she was a stripper um so that she could pay for her degree and so it's a really interesting look as well she talks a lot about the misconceptions around stripping and sex work the way that that is sort of portrayed in the media the way that autistic sex workers are portrayed and it's just really fascinating Mm. and I think obviously if you feel like you may be undiagnosed autistic or you are autistic there will be a lot in there that is comforting to know that like other people have been through this but I think you know people like us who aren't neurodivergent can learn a lot as well especially around those misconceptions of oh autistic people do this or autistic people do that and understanding how it presents differently in women as well so I think it's just a fascinating book to read um I actually listened to the audio yeah it sounds really interesting yeah 
Oh, cool. I just tried to, I just was Googling the book and her in case I like recognize her. And I think I do, but I'm not sure. I've probably just, yeah, seen her on, you know, game shows or panel yeah. shows or something. But um, because the name didn't quite ring a bell, but I was like to check. But yeah, other like even still, that sounds like a really interesting Yeah, story. I think you'd really enjoy it um, just as a memoir. Like it's just a really interesting memoir. Mm. Like it's really not that much about her being a comic and it's really not funny, funny because it's obviously yeah. deals with a lot of stuff. Um, so it can be quite emotional at times, but I just found it really interesting, um, to sort of hear about this and sort of hear about, cause I listened to it. Um, yeah, I guess just her reflecting on her life through that lens of now being autistic and how that's changed things for her having a diagnosis as well, which obviously know that so many women, especially are going through later in life, not just women though, like men are getting diagnosed yeah. later as well, but it does seem to be this thing of a lot of the talk around how autism presents has been geared towards men and women present differently so there are a lot of people our age and older who are getting diagnosed um kind of it's seemingly out of the blue but then realizing that actually it makes a lot of sense when they look back on their life yeah yeah totally yeah it's really interesting yeah so Okay, so that's recommendation, recommendation number, number one. one. And then recommendation number two. <laughs> what else have you got for us? So on the weekend, um, Alicia, our friend, and I went to London to see Maisie Peters. Um, so proud of her performing in her biggest show, like headline ever. So like, I don't know you, but yeah. Maisie, but I'm so proud Playing of you. Playing Wembley Stadium. Like yeah, I know. Not really. <laughs> uh, big L Woods energy there. Um yeah, no, it was so good. So it was Wembley Arena, not Wembley Stadium, but still, still her biggest audience. Yeah. Um, and but still, yeah, you sent me a thing. It was like almost thirteen thousand. Yeah, almost thirteen thousand. I think, which is yeah, massive. it's huge for her. That yeah. is definitely her biggest audience. Um, it's a big deal for her. You know, she talked about and thanked her parents who were there, and I'm sure her parents come to lots of her shows. But like, it was, it felt like really special for her. She had a it's lot a of guests one. there. Yeah, um, like Kate. Kate's brother is written about was you know like she had all her friends and stuff there as well um but yeah it was amazing show and um halfway through if anyone didn't see like my stories or anything halfway through she bought out her boss Ed Sheeran (laughs) um and everyone went (laughs) mental um it was I thought my head was going to explode from the noise um they did a duet of Lego House which is so cool it was amazing i love their friendship so and their relationship how she she has so many jokes about like yeah her boss and like doing good things for this like unknown artist ed sheeran it's yeah, so funny um, i love their so dynamic cute. and yeah she's like would be like oh like what would she say leading up to like the deluxe tracks it was like oh everyone like vote on this so that you know mr boss man knows that you want it or whatever like she always jokes about that sort of stuff that was really cute um and you know she said he's been like a big brother to her um because he's like 50 (laughs) like it was just really like yeah it was really cute so yeah it was lovely and she played two of the new songs from the deluxe um album the, the deluxe new tracks which obviously i mentioned last week i was really hoping that she would so that was fun um anyway that was yeah. not the point of which one she, um, play? she played the last one and holy revival yeah. oh okay cool because 
Because there's the line about Wembley. I thought she I was going to. I thought she was going to play guy on a horse because she has the line in there. Play Wembley Stadium like it's that hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I was yeah. hoping for that. And again, not the point. And we're talking about Maisie Peters again. That's okay. I'm sorry. Not Continue the point. With your this is my obsession. <laughs> um, so yeah, while we were in London, when we got there, um, we were like, "Oh, what should we do?" Like it was like oh, we got there at like four p.m. or something. But you know it's now autumn so it was completely dark um and we were like what should we do tonight Mm. we should just go have dinner and then um we looked up book bar which is somewhere we've wanted to go and Liz was like oh it is open till 9 p.m and we just both sort of looked at each other and were like yeah let's do that so we had dinner we went to book bar had a wine it was great um such a cute little shop just yeah loved the vibe it was so good and while I was there I was like I really want to pick I don't know what it was I was like I feel like I need to pick something literary like I feel like I need to pick something that's smart <laughs> as opposed yeah. to the usual stuff like, I'm yeah smart. like I'm smart drinking wine yeah in this exactly <laughs> anyway I actually ended up picking up a book um there are a couple that I found that I was really happy with that I'd found the author like there's a movie that I love called their finest and I actually picked up a book and was looking at it and was like oh this sounds interesting but it was like the second in a series and then I saw that that author had written the book that that film is based on so I was like oh, okay right, note that okay. down for next time I've got to check out her work but I actually ended up buying a book that I remember picking up and looking at in hardback when we were visiting last year um, and it's now in paperback right. and it's called The Schoolhouse by Sophie Ward and fun fact, I know or know the name Sophie Ward um, because she is also an actress and she used to be in Heartbeat. <laughs> she oh. was like a long-term <laughs> character in Heartbeat, but she's written two books. One of them really sounded like not my thing, like much more like abstract. And I, I like read the blurb and I was like, I am not smart enough for that. <laughs> that is not my right, thing. You know okay. how you just like pick up like a Booker Prize winner and you're like, no not for me not for me yeah um Uh but the schoolhouse is like a a literary thriller sort of mystery thing um it's really it's kind of hard to explain um there's sort of two timelines there's like present which is actually december 1990 and then it sort of dips back into diaries from 1975, which is when one of the people whose point of view perspective we follow, Isabel, was at this sort of experimental school um, where there was sort of some weird stuff going on. Um, So it sort of opens with Isabel, who's deaf as well. So that sort of adds to the, um, I guess, the the way that she tells the story is sometimes through... um, sort of communicating what they're signing and stuff which is really interesting um Mm -hmm. but basically it takes place over like four days in december isabel has seen something really unsettling has seen a person who she kind of recognizes and is really unsettled and so we know that something's happened in her past she receives this letter that brings up a lot of stuff for her Um, And then we start, we dip back into the diaries um, for a few days of like things happening at this school. And then we get another perspective, which is that of a detective who is investigating a missing girl. 
you sort of get the sense that maybe these cases will sort of link to each other or, you know, there's something sort of there. And so they sort of unfold together the new investigation and Isabel's growing unease at something. Someone's coming from her past to find her, um, but that all connects to the case at the moment, if that makes sense. Um, so it's sort okay. of this interwoven narrative. Um, and... Yeah, so that it's quite. It does feel quite pacey, even though it's written in this literary style. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say it was obviously pacey and captivating if you read it in just yeah. a couple of days. Yeah, I read. I mean, I yeah, and actually, it wasn't like I read most of it on the train either. Liz and I both had some lazy mornings in the hotel room mm. just reading, and I was really surprised by how quickly. I would, you know, when you like put the book down and you're, you're like, oh, I'm like it. halfway through already. Like it doesn't feel like. And you're like, oh, I've read it. Yeah. Chunk. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was quite pacey, but definitely written in a more, like when I was reading it, I was like, I don't know whether you would shelve, because because now that I work in a bookstore and I think about where I would shelve things, I was like, I don't know where whether you would <laughs> shelve it in like, I guess it would go in our crime section, but it also could easily just sit in the general fiction section because it's also not what you would consider yeah. a typical crime book it's really it's definitely like a yeah. literary thriller um or like a literary page turner sort of thing um but yeah and obviously this investigation brings up a lot of stuff for both the characters because the detective was in care as well so she has a lot of feelings towards certain certain elements of the story as it unfolds um but yeah it was really it was really interesting and like slightly different from what I'd usually read because I did think and know it was going to be a bit more literary but then I was like pleasantly surprised at I just expect sometimes like I just don't think that I'm a very literary person and sometimes I see those books and think I'm not smart enough to understand what's happening um and actually I was listening to an episode of Cool Story by Bridie Jabor and Brie Lee, which we've you've previously recommended in yeah. our um Substack, and they were talking about that with um The Fraud by Zadie Smith. And um Bridie was saying that she felt a bit confused and then Brie in this episode was like I felt a bit confused at times and Bridie was like oh good like I thought it was just me and like that is that thing of like <laughs> if, if Brie Lee's confused like she's like so intelligent like then what what, what, yeah, what do the rest, hope of, do us the rest of us yeah some plebs have like you know because to, to be yeah. me like Brie Lee is like this amazingly smart person um so yeah I just do look at books like Zadie Smith and stuff and think oh I'm just not going to read them because I just don't think I'm smart enough um yeah yeah which yeah Yeah, I get that feeling but I'm glad you enjoyed yeah I definitely want to read a Um, bit more literary well even though we say we never plan these intros to line up sometimes we plan our book clubs to be a bit on (laughs) theme between crime and theater uh, we've actually really set the scene, I think, for today's interview. We actually interview. have set the scene. And actually, let me just tell you a little bit as well, while we're talking about theatre, I also had the pleasure of seeing a brand new 
um, theatre production, a brand new musical. Oh, yes, of yeah, course. Yeah, featuring another previous heartbeat character so <laughs> I loved um yeah that was a bit why my laugh was pretty big before I was like oh my gosh another thing and, because I knew that and also do you know this, that but this we haven't character, talked about it so, what did you so think? this actor Joe McFadden who was in treason also was in a play with Sophie Ward last year and I wanted to see it oh. but they were so they were touring and it was an Agatha Christie play so it would have been really good like it would have been it's not too like again talking about me being like I don't think I'm smart enough for that and I got the Christie play that's perfect that's right up my alley um they were touring but it was when we were over here and none of the dates lined up to go see it um (laughs) so anyway that's just a fun fact aside but yeah I saw Treason the musical it's a new British musical um and it does seem rare that you would have a brand new musical that is 100% British and that is, you know, created here and it's not adapted from something. So that was really amazing. It was a very different type of musical to what I've sort of seen before. A lot of singing um, and the way that they tell the story, the main characters aren't the ones who do the dances. There's like these spirits on stage who are obviously dancers and so they add the movement so it's not like you know Guy Fawkes is suddenly breaking out in some do you know what I mean like they're singing but it's but it's the the movement doesn't necessarily come from you know your main character doing a box step it's it's like um the spirits add the movement and and they're more like choreographed moving around the stage while the dancers dance if that makes sense yeah so just adding to that like I know I've just dragged this this out so but we've bookended it with theatre and as you say it sort of adds really nicely to the interview that we're going to (laughs) share yes it does here we go into it yeah let's Our guest today is a former magazine editor, award-winning journalist and government communications writer. She's a playwright and a screenwriter and she penned the feminist Shakespearean stage comedy Netherbard and co-wrote the feature film Retreat. She lives in London and her debut, The Appeal, was the biggest selling debut novel of 2021. Since then, she's published two more novels, which I have absolutely raved about on the podcast and not stopped recommending to people. And we are so excited to welcome you, Janice Hallett, to Better Words. Oh, goodness, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And Michelle is not lying. I think we've got like fully recorded, I guess, journey of Michelle reading the appeal and then being like remember Caitlin you should read it you should read it and then coming back with the Twyford code and the apple and like the next one and now you're here which is very exciting I feel like we're coming full circle (laughs) wonderful oh it's wonderful to meet uh, readers and to to speak to other readers over the uh, mystery of the internet I originally was like what is this book that I keep seeing everywhere everyone was recommending it I'm in a a small um sort of Facebook group spin-off of a true crime podcast I love that is just books um, and everyone was posting this cover and I was quite intrigued by the cover because obviously if people have seen the appeal um, the the UK version it's got that cozy crime feel 
and I was like, what is this? Mm. I, I just don't know. And then I saw it at our local library. So I picked it up and like in 24 hours was like done <laughs> because it's just such an interesting concept. Um, and so I'm, I'm assuming that, that listeners will know what it's about, but basically all found documents I think we've, we've talked, talked about, about it so it much. Um, so anyway, I was like, Caitlin, I know you don't usually read crime, but this is set in community theatre. And Janice, that's actually how we met. So I was like, you're going to love this. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah. So wow. such a drama kid and a theatre kid. I was like, oh, maybe I could. Um, and I actually ended up buying a paperback of The Appeal in Bath, I think. Um, when she came over. When, okay. Yeah, so last year um, I went, yeah, went over um, for Michelle's wedding and was doing a bit of travelling around and, you know, bought so many books and everything. But, yeah, I think I went past it and I was like, oh, you know, I've been, been hearing about this book for ages. Michelle's been trying to get me to read it for ages. You know, it's a UK book. Obviously, I didn't want to buy books that I was seeing all the time back in Australia as well. And so I was like, okay, here we go. And then I started reading it. Um, at the very beginning of this year, I think, and I remember messaging you like pretty much straight away, Michelle, being like, "Oh my god, what's the deal with this girl?" <laughs> you know, like all of these things. I got so into. I really surprised myself because I'm not really a crime reader, um, and I'm I'm not so usually I, a rereader. But Caitlin talking to I, me about it, I was like, "I think I want to reread it." <laughs> so I then I then got the ebook um, and reread it again and it really is one of those books like I think it's it's always a test with um, any type of mystery whether it stands up to a reread isn't it because do you remember the twists and do you remember the red herrings and you've got so many little twists and turns in this story that I was like I kind of remember the end like I, I kind of remembered like the big twist but I was like, I don't really remember like all the little things that sort of added up. So it was still yeah. like, because there were so many little facets of things, it was still really wonderful to reread. And um, I was just, when I was researching and doing some questions today, I was like, oh, now I really want to reread Alberton Angels again because I loved that. Like, yeah, it was just <laughs> excellent. Um, so let's do the actual interview bit um <laughs> and we're, we are gonna do it after that story and all of those compliments yeah, we're very, we're excited. very excited and we're gonna do it a little bit differently oh. so usually um regular listeners will know we usually start by diving into you know themes and things discussed in the book um but we're actually going to talk to you about your writing yes, in the new book yeah. which by the way is the christmas yeah, I don't appeal even think I said that. um a new novella that's yeah. out now i don't even think we've said that yet yes. but that is your brand new book and what we'll <laughs> be talking about but not quite yes. yet yes <laughs> we're going to do things differently because as people might have guessed from the name the christmas appeal it is related to the appeal um back in the same world so we just thought we'd ask you about your writing processes first. It sort of leads us on to talking a bit about your debut and then why you are revisiting it. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of the plan. So we mentioned in the intro that you have been writing for ages, obviously professionally. You've also been screenwriting. And um, I saw in the acknowledgements for the Christmas Appeal, you've obviously written for amateur theatre groups as well, for your amateur theatre groups. So... When we like write, I'm going to give this novel thing a try instead of a script. I have to say it happened really quickly and 
almost by accident because I've been I had my film um, made or my co-written film made in 2011 and for the next sort of 10 years I was trying to get other things made for film and TV and it just wasn't happening I was I was working with Carl Tibbetts for a while then we went our separate creative ways and um you know, worked on our own stuff, I couldn't get anything off the ground. And I was actually on a, a scheme for screenwriters who hadn't had any success yet. They'd kind of fallen through the net. Quite a sort of sad scheme to be on, really, because it meant that it was like the last chance saloon uh, to get your work noticed. I was on this scheme and I was given a mentor in uh, Cameron Roach, who at the time was assistant, a uh, head of drama at Sky TV, and I was talking to him. I said, you know, how I've got loads of ideas that I want to get out there and it's just not happening. And he said, um, well, you could write a book, write one of those ideas as a novel and then see if you can get it made for the screen then. And from that suggestion, I, I sort of thought about it for a bit. And after going through the um, angst of thinking, well, he's actually told me to give up screenwriting now. <laughs> Um, I, so yeah, I thought, that is oh. a rather long roundabout way of yeah. doing it, isn't it? And after 10 years, I thought, oh, I have to give it up now. But I thought, well, you know, he's, he's got a point. You know, if you keep doing what um, you've been doing, you'll keep getting what you've got, um, which at that point was nothing. So I thought, oh, I've got nothing to lose. So I took the idea that I was working on right at that moment for the screen, and that was about um, a couple who've been volunteering overseas for many years as medics. And for some reason, they're back in the UK now and trying to um, get careers going as medics. And um, they noticed something odd about this small town drama group. But is it their complete that their view of the world because of the experiences they've had, or is there something going on here? So I had that, that basic idea. So I kind of closed down Final Draft, my screenwriting software, and opened up Word one day and started writing that idea as as a novel and what I did was think well this story is carrying on on screen how about the novel is emails flying back and forth backstage between minor characters so to speak and that's why there's there's several characters in the appeal that never actually appear we never hear from them and it was all um accidental accidental I've, it just happened like that in that one moment of thought came the entire appeal and that whole world and I have to say, I was quite free and I took my time writing it. I took a year to write that novel and really enjoyed it. I just went where the characters took me. I didn't know where it was going at any particular point. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky. I feel quite lucky even that what came out at the end of that year is a story and a format that readers really connect with. It's, it's different. I didn't realise how different it was until it was published. But uh, yeah, the readers really connected with it. And, I, and they do still. I, I hear from new readers even now, you know, two, That's three years amazing. later. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to you about the actual way you write your your work as well. We're going to ask you about yeah, that. The format is so yeah, it blows my mind a little bit when I start to think about it. Um, so yeah, that's absolutely amazing, and it's it is so cool. So I mean, this is jumping ahead a little a little bit as well, but. Um, so the appeal is being adapted for the screen, isn't it? I have been uh, writing the pilot uh, for that. We've It's been optioned, but so there's a big gap between mm. being optioned and being made in this world. And, and most most projects fall through that gap. I just You probably speak to a lot of authors about this. I mean, it's wonderful to have the idea optioned. 
but it's when you actually get it made that it's the really exciting bit. But yeah, I've, I've written um, pilot scripts for um, the Appeal and the Twyford Code. Oh, cool. And you know, my fingers are constantly crossed. I don't know how I can type with my fingers crossed all the time. <laughs> and, but, but I, I think do. the thing is, is like obviously you can't. It's all in development, and you know, or not in development, but you know, um, underway. But will you, with the appeal, have that sort of the book is the backstory or are we sort of getting the voiceovers of the emails being sent you know like how is that sort of is it gone the way you originally yeah, imagined it must be an interesting format to adapt yeah no it's it's more like more the way i originally imagined yeah. so it's kind of more conventional as a screen because the emails is mm. very much a literary device yeah. and it simply doesn't transfer to the screen like a lot of things in the triford code it's a literary device, and because I'm quite new to novel writing, I'm exploring these devices quite um, quite a lot in them because they're, yeah. they're, they're things I couldn't do on the screen. So I'm back back at the screen um, and, and using the screen devices uh, for the ideas. It's, uh, it's it's wonderful to switch between two. I like the idea that it's like the companion, like, but because it, it does introduce people to it, but then if they read, because because sometimes as well you might people might watch that and then want to read the adaptation or you know it might encourage them to read stuff and you don't necessarily want them to read exactly the same thing so I like the idea that it's like well this is this is the behind the scenes thing like that fascinates me um an interesting thing though I don't know if you I only watched like half an hour of it but the new um series on channel four and I can't believe they've made a series of this already um but Partygate which is about party gate <laughs> oh i haven't seen that yet i'm gonna to have to watch i that. saw it advertised and i was like really already already um an interesting device that they've used is um obviously like they've got the sue gray report into all the so people who don't who don't live in the uk and aren't obsessed with this stuff um the party gate is all the parties that um like politicians and like the prime minister and stuff were holding in uh, number 10 Downing Street during lockdown when we were all locked down. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> and, and, and Janice, most people were probably reading the appeal in that third lockdown. <laughs> yes. um, no, I bet they were. Yeah, so we were, we're all in lockdown devouring novels and um, TV shows and um, the politicians were partying and there's a report, that the, the big report into it was the Sue Gray report. And what they've done, obviously, is use that as like a factual basis for what what was happening um so the voiceovers and stuff are obviously bits of evidence but then the emails are done where it's like a webcam thing of someone typing and and say like it'll be like don't forget presser around and it's like they're obviously typing but we're hearing like or it's i can't remember if it was coming up on the screen but it's like the webcam sort of don't forget that press are around, so be careful. I don't think we can do this or whatever. And it's a, it's a clever way to, I guess, have that the, the, the fact that the report is a lot of email communication as well. It's it is. Yeah, it is. I think the, the judge um, requested all the emails, didn't she? Mm. So she had to read, read through them all. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I was... Shades of the appeal there. It does, it does. 
Only, you know, what's scary is that, you know, I would think the appeal was more realistic than reading the Partygate <laughs> stuff. Like, it's so, that's the scary thing, isn't it? Truth is stranger than fiction, which, you know. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It always is. Always is. Okay, so so, so then yeah. once you have, you know, this novel written that you've thought, oh, I'll give this a go and I've got this novel, then how did you go about get like getting it published? Like, what was the next step? That was fairly easy, I have to say, because my, my decades of failure came before yeah. that point. And I, I had a screenwriting agent. And luckily, the agency she's at um, also do represent novelists. So all she, all, I say all, all she needed to do was pass that manuscript over to Gaia, her, her colleague. I then had a, a book agent because she, she liked it too. So that was a relatively smooth thing. And when you have an agent, of course, they send the manuscript out and you don't have to see mm-hmm. the rejections. So that that's one good thing having an agent. So I, it was only, only when get the good news. there was some some interest in in the manuscript that I heard again. So yeah. uh, that that was a good thing. That was that was relatively smooth, I have to say. Was it a quick process? Fair, let's think. Well, I had uh, had the deal by around August 2019. I wrote the book over the whole of 2018, between February and February 2019. By August 2019, August September, I had the deal with uh, Viper and. The book appeared, it was published in January 2021. So about a year and a bit. So it's quite, it's longer than normal. I mean, now my books are published, roughly speaking, once a year. So um, it's longer than normal. I think your entrance into publication with a publisher is slightly longer because you have to fit into their schedule and then once you're in the schedule it's you're more it's more regular so yeah there was a little bit of a gap there during which during that gap I wrote the Twyford code so that that's how that worked so when the appeal was published I'd I'd written Twyford already and uh, the mysterious case of the Alperton Angels has that onerous status of being the first book I've written having already been a published author Mm. so that had that so although they say the second book is, is the problematic one, like the second album, yeah. uh, for me, the, the Alperton Angels had, was slightly different because I already knew what people thought of my writing yeah. and what they liked and what had been criticised. That, that had a slightly different colour for me as I wrote it. I was slightly I more that aware. that is quite common too. We often hear, um, you know, writers and authors really often joke on our podcast that the best tip for writing your second novel is to have it written before the first one comes out because I would agree with that completely (laughs) absolutely because otherwise you do have that yeah second book syndrome thing where you go oh no people have read it and they like it or they don't like it or they like (laughs) this and they don't like that and they expect something from me now and now what do I do yeah, I mean, especially um, with me, because most of my books are different. Um, that, that's almost the, the challenge I set myself when I start a new book, that this has to be different. It at least has to be different from the last book. And if it can be different from all of the books, then that's that's better. So ev- everything I write is going to be different. It's not going to be the same mm. as the others at all. That's quite fun, though. That's fun for the reader as well. Um, I hope yeah. so. <laughs> I really hope they come with me. So So far, so good. I mean, the people do expect the unexpected and that's 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 good yeah for me. yeah no I, I love that um and so we've, we've sort of kind of mentioned the appeal a bit and obviously is largely set in community theatre we mentioned before that that's how we met so Janice I was doing my first ever community theatre musical um anything goes <laughs> Yeah. Caitlin wow. is a seasoned yeah you know, anything goes drama my, I don't know eighth 
or something like that. I grew up doing musical theatre like in high school and then community theatre and this one, this show that Michelle and I were doing was like with the, you know, we'd graduated to like the adult choir society, which was very exciting for me. (laughs) In my head, I'm picturing the people that I know from our community theatre, none of whom have done anything, none of whom have done anything as, as wacky as some of the stuff that goes on in the appeal but there are certain types of people that you're representing in the appeal uh different Uh i guess there's there's a hierarchy and there's a there's a standing in the community and it's just funny that like immediately certain people popped into my head of like oh that's because it is and caitlin knows this as well there are certain families who's Mm. like they're just well known in our town's community theater circle yeah well, amateur theatre is such a, an all-consuming hobby that it, it kind of it does involve whole families because that's what the whole family does. And well, as you know, these groups they they're putting on a play, any play, takes so much organisation and so much effort and commitment that you have to be an organiser if you're going to belong to one of those companies. And if, even if you're not, you end up organising the longer you stay joined. Because there's you just so much get in, that has to and be like, done. You just get in deeper, you know, and you know everyone. <laughs> and then the longer you're yep. in these societies, then, you know, because obviously people do come and go, but like the longer you're there and you're like, we know everyone, then there's this new person. Like when our friend and I were like, who yeah. are you talking to us about books, you stranger? But now, you know, yeah. <laughs> we're best friends and have this podcast. It... So it's just such a unique <laughs> little world. And on the other side of the coin, when you're new to the group and you're very aware that these people are all big, long friends, long standing friends who've been through so many productions together. You're trying to break in and make friends with them. That, too, is is really awkward, as it it is awkward when there's strangers trying to break in. (laughs) It's a really um, particular experience. And I love it when people who have experience of amateur drama read the appeal, because I think they perceive... They perceive it on a different level. And they we must really get so much more out of it. What I'm <laughs> yeah. getting at. Yeah, 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 surely, surely you do. Even from my one time doing it, you know, I was like, oh, this is everything Caitlin's talked. You know, like I this know. is all the little yeah. things, all the little dramas that go on. It but really that's, is so that's what I wanted to ask because you. So... I, sorry, I'll just actually say that um, right. having, so I, yes, having read the appeal now, in between reading the appeal and reading the Christmas appeal, I have joined a new society You're here in the Sydney, new person. And I'm the new person that doesn't know anybody. And then reading the Christmas appeal again where they've got like there's a couple of newbies and they're they're all like, Who are they that yeah. they got cast in these roles when we're not cast in these roles? <laughs> and oh my god, I was just like, Oh my god. So yeah, yeah, all this to say, we really do understand the, the community. Excellent, because I, I have to say, when you when you run one of uh, these companies and you cast plays, sometimes a, a new person coming can be a really refreshing. So you'll cast that new person as a main role because your audience, who tend to be the same audience for every play, will you know they will love to see a new face on stage, having seen all the same faces. So yeah, it's new people can whiz in and snap up those main roles to the uh, annoyance and of they everyone sh- they should yeah, they should absolutely being in the audience for some you know it is commented upon in in, in our small town like because um i now have another friend who started doing costuming backstage with caitlin's mum and sister yeah. um, <laughs> um and you know so they're doing greece and we were like 
who are they going to cast for these roles? Because they need young people. And, like, we were talking about, like, ooh, even, oh, is this going to be a production without so-and-so in it? And, like, all this sort of stuff. So it is, like, even it as an audience member who, you know, goes every year and isn't involved anywhere else, like, you still are, you, yeah, you're used to seeing you get the same to know faces. But the people who you are do, sort you of get to the know familiar people. faces. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, but Janice, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit to get back to this. Um, like, tell us a little bit about you know what you love about it. Obviously, the world of the appeal is inspired by your you know decades with your particular theatre company. So tell us about that. And I understand that's where you met your partner as well. Yes, met him there. Met most of vast majority of my lifelong friends there because I. I did it from the age of about 14 to when it uh, unfortunately our group folded in about 2011 so yeah many 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 years and we of course went through I went through so many um, different plays comedies dramas we didn't do musicals strangely enough not in my era because we didn't have anyone who was um, musical or who, or who could sing, uh, but we did a lot of dramas, we did a lot of different kinds of dramas, and you do you make lifelong friends with people because you go through so much. Doing play week is like something else, and you have to have experienced it to understand. I mean, it's there's a, a massive deadline. You have to it has to be ready mm-hmm. by the the first night. You ha- everyone has to learn their words. No one can be ill. You know everything. I mean, in the appeal, someone dies, but the play still goes yeah. on. Yeah. You know, there's there's a murder, but that doesn't affect anything. You know, people, everything has to go in to making that. But the play must go on. The show must go on. And there's that that feeling, that commitment. In the Christmas appeal, the roof um, caves in. To the drama. Yeah, in the Christmas appeal, we've got a roof caving in that we hear about. There's also a dead body somewhere a dead body just appears like and the show and must go on, on. yeah <laughs> i see i see that as a microcosm of life yeah. because life goes on whatever happens and the stage is is a microcosm yeah. as you were describing you know you've got this massive deadline no one can be alive. i was like ah oh, it sounds like working for a newspaper <laughs> yes it is do you know it's the deadline the power of the deadline whatever you're doing yeah. is is a great motivator <laughs> and it means that so you can cut corners you can you know, it, like as in um, the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels, the lead character there, she will lie mm. to get what she needs to get when she needs to get it. Mm. So, yeah, p- what people do when they're up against a deadline and when things have to happen and they're up against it is what fascinates me. Yeah. And that's there's nowhere does that happen quite as um, baldly as it does in amateur theatre. Yeah. Or in the theatre generally, yeah. probably <laughs> in the professional theatre too. I've yeah. never properly worked there. So. But, yeah, as you say, yeah, like theatre and then journalism in for the Alperton Angels, you do explore that. What will people do when they're in those very tough situations, which, you know, seemingly um, like frivolous, I guess people would be like, oh, it's just a play. Like, but but when I guess yeah. you take us into oh, that goodness, mindset of, yeah, but you take yeah. us there. You're like, we're in that mindset. We're like, oh my God, yes, this has to keep going. Like, you know, it really, you really build that world for people who maybe aren't as familiar with it or maybe are just like, I don't understand how you can't just call it off. You know, it's, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's strange, isn't it? Because you can't, it's people have paid money to see you, it'll be in public, and people are expecting the weight of expectation, they're expecting Mm. to be entertained and to see a play. And that is such a a driving force behind so much behaviour. It's, oh, fascinating, I could talk about it forever. (laughs) And and what is it, you know, 
Yeah, clearly. But what is it like, just to, just to round off on that, you know, what is it that you, that kept you going that whole time that you were like, I love this and I love being in this world? I, I love the drama. I love the play nights and the absolute, the magic that happens when the curtain goes up. There's something magical about it. I, I can't really explain it. Because I, I would be really, really nervous. Whenever I acted, I would be so nervous beforehand. But as soon as you step onto stage, those nerves fall away completely and you're in a real um, concentrated state of mind. You know what you have to say. You know what you're going to do and what everyone else is going to say and do. And that's something we don't have in real life. But on stage, you have that. Mm. And people are watching and they're paying attention to you. They're listening to you when you speak. Again, something that doesn't happen. <laughs> In life, not with me. Um, but, yeah, there's, there is something that happens. There's something magic in the stage. And it's really hard to explain if you haven't experienced it yourself. But I would recommend to everyone, get, maybe give acting a go at some point in your life because you will learn a lot. And it, it does build confidence for the future. I have to say my background in amateur drama really prepared me for elements of being an author that I didn't anticipate at all. I didn't anticipate doing this kind of thing, which is kind of public speaking yeah. and actual public speaking, which I've had to do a lot of. Um, we uh, Authors do lots of festivals and events in libraries and events in schools. And we do, I do now more public speaking than ever. And yet I became a writer because I didn't, I didn't have confidence in my own voice. So I don't know, life has a way of um, testing you and taking you, giving you what you need and not what you want. Mm. And amateur drama helped help me prepare for that because although I was playing characters on the um, on the stage, it, it's helped me get into my own character in front of, of people now and to to speak in front of people now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the but being a member of a drama group has defined my life and created my personality in, in many many ways. And I'm only learning that now that I'm slightly older. And I can look back. And in fact, my, my drama group folded in 2011. And people often ask me, do you miss it? Do you miss um, doing that? And I have to say I don't because it's almost like I've learned everything I needed to learn from that experience. And I loved it. But now it's over. It's in the past. And I need to move on now. And I have moved on mm. uh, to a different kind of performance and a different <laughs> kind of uh, creativity. It sounds really weird. But when you look back, your life has certain eras. And that was a really magical era for me. And it's one where, again, like you said, I met my partner. I've met most of my friends, my lifelong friends, who are still friends. We've been through so much together on that stage that it's really set us in uh, amazing uh, stead for uh, for our lives now mm. as, you, as you can tell i hope the appeal is a tribute yeah. to amateur theater people often pick up on the um outrageous characters the behavior <laughs> the um sometimes you can see that, that them as awful the way people behave but there's always a good reason behind it there's a a, a positive motivation to put on a good play mm. and to to be um to be great performers for the public yeah. Uh, and that's behind it and it's it is positive and it is my tribute it's my love letter to that to that hobby yeah which I found myself um returning to certainly before I didn't think I'd return ever to it mm. but when I started the Christmas appeal I found myself right back there <laughs> yeah. it was like straight and, and we were saying as well that when we started reading it it just immediately I was like oh these people <laughs> certain <laughs> certain people's emails you know, know. just yeah, yeah you're like straight back there and we will we will ask you a little bit a little bit more about that 
uh, later as well. Um, But, you know, as you mentioned, the thing that, you know, people always talk to you about, the thing that struck me, the thing that I was like, Caitlin, you're going to love this, was the way that you write your novels and it is in that amazing found document style or, you know, transcripts for the Twyford Code, which I must say mm-hmm. I didn't love as much only because I was in the middle of writing my own um, podcast about a, about a camel race across Australia. It was really deep in transcripts. <laughs> <laughs> I was, and I was, my goodness, I, I was bet. deep in transcripts where, let me tell you, it every time camel came up, it, auto-corrected to camera so I just don't think the effect worked as well on me because I was like I feel like I know where this is <laughs> it was like work all yeah, over again I was like this is a bit triggering I'm trying to relax <laughs> um but it was it was still wonderful and I, in fact I should return to it again now I've completely cleansed myself of of that yeah, podcast but yeah I, oh well, I hope you enjoy I was, it <laughs> I mean I still enjoyed it and I still was like well I don't want to stop because I'm really I want to know what happens but oh it was God. just the yeah it was just so funny that that I was like that's a very niche thing for me to be like but I'm doing transcripts for (laughs) work it's a very specific hang up about that book but yeah very specific um (laughs) well you know I I started Twyford um immediately after the appeal and the one thing I set myself the one goal that I, I thought the next novel has to be completely different. I didn't want to write the same novel again because I was so much in that mindset. So I did something completely different. Um, a one character, opposed to the cast of thousands in the appeal, one character, a man, a male character, and um, he's a character who can't read or write. I thought, how, how on earth is he going to write a book if he can't read or write? Of course, he's going to have to record it mm. and we're going to have to read a transcript. So that's where the Twyford Code came from. Yeah. And it is, um, it's quite different. It's quite a It is, a but read. it's such an interesting For that thing, one, still. did you write that all out and then change specific words that needed to or did you record it? No. And... I did, at the very, very beginning, I recorded a bit for the first maybe half a page I recorded in Steve's accent, he's he's a, a Londoner, so I recorded it in his accent to see how various different um, recording software and transcription software would interpret what he said. You know, it's very, very interesting. A lot of this software is very knowledgeable when it comes to brand names and proper nouns. It will know those those perfectly, but it, it struggles when we when it comes to the bits of speech that we sort of slur together, like we, we, we don't realise quite how many words we'll slur together when we talk and, and everybody completely understands it but the transcription software will come up with all sorts of odd colorful words instead i don't know if anyone's ever watched um automatic uh subtitles on a news program oh yeah and the um i don't know how uh, poor people who need to use those subtitles understand what's happening in the world because some of it's nonsense yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that comes up when people are talking quickly yeah. uh, so that was inspiring as well but yeah i did a bit of recording but once i'd got into the flow I was writing quite naturally in the format I I heard Steve in my head really clearly he's um of of all the characters I've written he's the one that's I think closest to me weirdly because we don't have the same background we're we're not the same gender we're not you know anything but yet he and I are really very very close and um I could hear his voice in my head the whole time so it's quite easy to to transcribe it how a an automatic transcription software would have transcribed what he said one one of my notes I think 
in our like document with the questions and everything was it must have been so strange to edit to keep the intentional typos but get rid of like the unintentional typos oh it was it was because you know each book goes through several several edits and the copy editors and proofreaders and of course they have to have to be briefed on what's what's should be in there because they're very um very very stringent people and they'll correct things that um even as a writer i wouldn't think to to correct or to to do um it's a real um skill is is proofreading and copy editing but yeah they had to be fully briefed on what was meant to be in there and what was meant to be wrong and what was meant to be right um so you sort of mentioned that with starting the novel with the appeal obviously the idea was what's happening in the background of this idea that you'd had for Scream but did you ever think oh I'll do some of that and then I'll do some in like traditional pro like was there ever a time when you considered that or was it just always going to be no I didn't consider it at all and I think it might have come from my experience as a screenwriter Mm. as I was used to um, conveying character through dialogue and of course emails are dialogue but as we write to each other and of course I'm, I'm very much the email generation I mean I did most of my professional career over the email. Mm. I mean, I think when I started off, I must have been on the phone a lot. But I don't really remember that time. <laughs> I just remember emailing constantly, yeah. day, you know, all day long. And as a, as a journalist, sometimes I was selling ideas and features and, and things to people. And sometimes I was on the receiving end of that. Uh, so I, I got kind of both sides and I learned to read between the lines. And I think that served me quite well doing the appeal. Yeah. And because uh, what people don't say, I find is more interesting than what they say. And reading between the lines is a real thrill. And also seeing how people, you know, email or text or whatever, different people in their lives as well. Like, oh, is so absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. I paid an awful lot of attention to that, certainly in the second edits, the structural and uh, line edits that we do, looking at each character and how they say hello and sign off to every other different character that they speak to so that it's different every time because mm. my aim was for people to be able to read the book without really paying much attention to the email headers so you didn't yeah. have to know who was emailing <laughs> who just by that very opening hello you knew who was talking and who they were talking to yeah. and I hope I hope that works yeah is it funny how when you do see emails in a book it is automatic it's almost automatic that you sort of skim the the top bit I always look on yours like I'll see like two from and then I don't really pay attention to the dates or anything because I just no. trust that you're going to take me on that journey and you're going to tell me <laughs> these things. <laughs> I remember my mum saying once she was listening to a different audio book. I forget what, what it was now. Was it Attachments oh by God, Rainbow Rowell? I think Rowell? it was. Because that's all emails, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's all emails. But I remember my mum saying she was listening to the audio book. I can't believe you just guessed the exact right book. I wouldn't have remembered That's because you've told me this story before. Oh, maybe. <laughs> but because with all the emails and everything, the audio says like to so-and-so from so-and-so at whatever.com Tuesday, you know, the 10th at 3 p.m., or whatever like every single time and she hated it (laughs) yeah because you would skim that skip that and like skim it with your eyes but on an audiobook it was just all there (laughs) yeah um so my big question then um that I I think every time I read one of your books or reread them is how do you come up with this how do you plot this out how do you do the clues and the red herrings and all that sort of stuff so that it all makes sense well 
I wish I could say to you that I'm one of those writers who plots everything in, in advance <laughs> and has a wall covered in post-it notes with string going That's between. That's why I imagine your house is like just a, you know, a wall. No, <laughs> not at all. Not in the least. I do have post-it notes, but that I don't use them that much. Um, <laughs> no, as for my first draft, I just go for it. I don't make any plans. I just use perhaps any some ideas are flying around my head as to what it might be about. But I just go. And with each book so far, um, I've had I've done one particular either letter or passage that has then sparked the entire book. Uh, in the appeal, it's the early email and it's from the lady from Medicine Sans Frontier and it's a testimonial for Sam. And it's she's saying how this nurse um, has, you know, has had a wonderful career uh, working in Africa and now she recommends her for any job in the UK. And once I'd written that, I, I felt there's so much here to be unpicked. Why is this nurse coming back? Why is this person so keen that she falls on her feet and gets a good job when she gets back? There's something here. There's something happening. And that sparked the entire appeal once I started there. With Steve, it's one of one of the early um, e- uh, sort of transcriptions where he's telling us about his life. Again, in the Alfreton Angels. Now, what was uh, my beginning there? I think it was Amanda. Amanda sending out her emails, her phishing emails, and describing herself, and describing herself in exactly the same in each one. I'm, I'm Amanda Bailey. I did this and that. I'm very much this and that. Now, give tell me what you need. And I kind of got her character. Uh, there doesn't that spark that whole whole book off so there's something that sparks off the book but once I get going I don't plot or plan I just let things happen and sometimes I drop things that might be clues later on and, and they might not be and once I get to the end of the first draft that's the first moment that I know what the whole story is going to be about um, and who the main characters are who who dies who did it mm. And that's when I go back and reverse engineer the beginning to fit the end. And that's when I put in a lot of clues, take out some clues that I put in and they no longer serve the story. Uh, and then look at overall at the whole thing once that first draft is in. And then once my editor sees it and we have the first the first big edit is called the structural edit. And it's usually quite big. And my editor will pick up on a lot of um things and she makes suggestions as to what could be better, what could come, what could go. And then I, I can I can do more then. I know more at that point what it's going to be about and I can do more of that editing. Uh, but no, for that first draft, I I try and recreate that moment when I started writing The Appeal, when I felt completely free and completely mm. you know, creative and let those creative juices flow at that moment. And I'm always trying to recreate that <laughs> that moment despite deadlines and despite yeah. other things and precious things that you have once you're a published author like like stepping out on a stage after having all the nerves mm. everything when I start writing everything falls away and it's just me and the audience which for me is when I'm writing I'm thinking of who will be reading this that's a real pure moment uh, as a writer writing that first draft incredible that's so yeah that's amazing it really is it's so amazing i'm also aware how mad that night sounds so what you're saying it doesn't (laughs) because like when i'm in so when i write as well like there are just some magic moments where you just sort of Mm. you're there and I, i think it happens to people when they're reading or something or you're really engrossed in something and then suddenly it's like you, re- you, you you're like it's like you've been underwater and you just like resurface and then everything just sort of like you're like oh that's the time 
Like you, you do. There are certain times where you just get into this flow of like yeah. focus and concentration. And I think that's what I always try to chase too when I'm doing creative work. So that totally makes sense. Yeah. Well, they say that if you want to take your reader somewhere, you have to first go there yourself. So if you're writing an emotional scene, you have to feel that emotion. You have to be in that scene. Mm. Uh, if you want your reader to be mystified or to be intrigued and thrilled, you have to feel that while you're writing it. And I think that's very true. Yeah. It's interesting, I think, with crime as well, because I think I've heard other crime authors say it, you know, they can't plot too much necessarily because if they feel like from the very beginning that they know what's going to happen, then, like, what's the point? Because the reader will know what's going to happen as well. So you kind of just have to go in, which I guess for crime makes so much sense. But because with a mystery... We as readers think, oh, you must have known because there were these clues in the beginning. You know, like it's just... Yeah. You sort of forget that yeah. actually you can go yeah. back and put them in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not a single a single moment yeah. writing that novel. It, yeah. it does take yeah, months. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so interesting because yeah. yeah. I think maybe more so than other genres that that is really different, I think, for readers and writers is that you kind of just got to go in and be like, oh, what's this world? What's happening? What's happening? And then you'll go like, oh, twist. That's what's happening. Like, <laughs> it's probably the most, it might be the most similar, I think, for readers and writers, you know, compared to other genres. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I never know who's, uh, well, not, I don't know who did it. I don't know who's going to die when I start. <laughs> well, yeah, novel. this is the thing I'm starting my yours, next yeah. one. I'm right at the beginning of my, my next novel after, my, well, my next novel out will be The Examiner in 2024. That's, that's already written. But I'm starting the one after that. I've got no idea who's going to die of these characters I've got. Love no that. idea at all. I don't know who did it. Yeah. No, they haven't died yet. No. <laughs> who knows that's what amazing. will happen then. Um, and another, yeah, another like, technical writing question, but when you're writing, do you sort of tend to write it more in the order that we will read it or with something like the appeal do you write certain emails and stuff in a row and then maybe splice them together later or like with with the Alperton Asia okay yeah I write chronologically um as you'll read it in the book I mean chronological mm. uh, regarding the book or as I assume that it will be read. that's not to say occasionally I don't think oh that that should be revealed a little bit later or a little bit earlier and I'll, I might move something around. It doesn't happen a great deal, but it does happen. But I try to write chronologically. I don't, well, I don't know whether I even try to write chronologically. It just happens. I just, it just I do. do. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and so then... But working out at that, at that later stage, working out which clue is revealed when, yeah. which clue is, is set and then paid off is... Because you have to have it all happening all the way through rather than setting up loads of stuff and then in the last 20 pages everything is revealed. Yeah. You don't really want that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, things have to be quite well paced and that's something I also pay a lot of attention to later on. So then The Christmas Appeal brings us back to the world of the Fairway Players, um, but it is not... I mean, I guess it is a sequel, but you don't have to have read The Appeal, I think, to enjoy The Christmas Appeal. There are... Not there at are all. certainly, no, not at all. you know, references and clues. And as we've already said, Michelle and I started reading and we we're like, oh, my God, we were straight back with these characters, you know, annoyed at, the, at certain people <laughs> and all of this stuff. But yeah. um, it is a separate uh, story, a separate mystery. Um, but we read in the acknowledgements that you didn't actually intend to go back to that world. And it started with, I think, no. a Christmas idea. Can you tell us about that? We knew that my book um, publication date was going to be moving because I've been published in January so far. 
It's, I'm going back a bit further. I, I will get round to that. Yeah, no. <laughs> I've been published in January, ever since I was first published, and that's more or less a debut slot, and it's not really for a more experienced author. They wanted to move my publication date to September, but that would give me almost two years without a book. So my editor said, well, if you fancy writing a Christmas novella to be published this Christmas, you know, if, if you fancy doing that, we, that will plug the gap, so to speak, you know, and your readers will have something, you know, between the two full-length novels. And this was in August um, last year. So the sun was shining. It was really warm. Uh, people were in flip-flops and shorts. Um, if, you said, if you fancy writing a Christmas novella, um, give it a go. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go then, because I'd, you know, I'd like to have a book published in, by Christmas. That'd be quite a challenge. So I sat down and thought. I thought about the darkness of Christmas and, and murder and how, um, it's, as a wonderfully celebratory festival, it, it's quite dark. There's, there's a lot of you know, murder there, naturally. But there's always an Agatha Christie on at, at Christmas, mm-hmm. isn't there? So we expect darkness. And I started writing A Christmas Round Robin. Uh, this one of these emails that people send out um, saying how wonderful their family has been for the last year and all the good things that have happened to them. And I thought, well, this is a character from The Appeal. This is Celia from The Appeal. Who else could she be this, this insufferable? Yeah. And whoosh, suddenly, suddenly I was back in Lockwood and I was back with the Fairway Players. Mm. And things had moved on, of course, because the events of The Appeal happened in 2018, 20, yeah, 2018 2019. So things have changed and there's been a change of um, leadership of the committee and things are kind of hotting up in terms of politics. But also the the group is putting on a pantomime. Now, there's there's not much that's darker than a pantomime (laughs) at Christmas. I mean, again, you think it's for children, you think it's um, happy and um, bright and breezy, but it has a very dark background and it's quite violent and it's uh, anarchic and bawdy. And what better than a pantomime? to uh, set this murder that happens. And we've got um, Femi and Charlotte are back, the, the lawyers who um, were investigating events in the appeal. Uh, they're back for the Christmas appeal because they're now retired QC, or K- he's a KC now, um, <laughs> has, has set them another challenge. That's what gave, gave rise to the, to the appeal. I had to change him, actually, um, Tano. I had to change him from a QC to a KC yeah. while I was writing it. It was quite... Sad. Yeah, it's um, very odd, yeah. isn't it? The, yeah, it's yeah. so strange. Stuff you I don't think about either. Like, yeah. I liked that they were back, mm. though. Um, and, you know, like, yes, for anyone who hasn't read it, like, the structure is that they're both kind of sent these found documents and reading through them as we're reading through them. And I like that we also have, like, their messages to each other. And they're like, why are we doing this? <laughs> why has he sent us these? Why, like, what else could have possibly happened to this group of people? And even, and as a novella as well, I also really enjoyed the sort of short version of, like, they're just doing the Christmas panto and it's, like, supposed to be really quick and, like, not that dramatic yeah. and not that insane. And it just always is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was—I was never, never did a pantomime. It's like one of those things. I think I'm living vicariously yeah. now through my novels. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we, the Raglan players, we never did one. I don't yeah. think I've ever done oh. one either. Not specifically. We did like Christmas concerts and things like that. I feel um, like it's a much more British thing as yeah. well. Like it doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me that you wouldn't have done one in Rocky because I feel like it's a very British thing. It's—it's it's really. How did it feel going back and being with all those people again? It was like going back to. My old school, it was like being with old friends and visiting, but not having been there for a while. So you're catching up with everybody and finding out what they've done and finding out 
you know, what's changed for the better and for the worse, wow. which the worse is always much more interesting <laughs> yeah. than what's changed for the better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, I just devoured this um, in an afternoon. Like I just, it's so good. It's going to be so great for Christmas. Oh. And I think it's one of those. Oh, thank you. Thank you for reading it oh so far God. away from Christmas. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll people go are reading to... it in August, September. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back to it, yeah, I'm sure. In fact, reading this, I was like, I really want to reread because I gave my copies of the Twyford Code and the Albert Angels to Caitlin because um, oh. I was like really trying to cull a lot of my books and only bring over, ship over, like most of the bookshelf is I still want to read these books. I haven't read them. I didn't read. And the reason, anything I culled, I was like, even if it's a favourite, if they're a British author, I can just buy their books over here again. So Mm -hmm. I got rid of a couple of like, because also we have that big trade paperbacks as well, which I don't love. Um, oh, yes, of course, they're big, yeah, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, so, so I, um, I was like, I can just buy, like, the paperbacks. But, yeah, I, I that one in particular as well, um, mm-hmm. I just, I think I got so into it as well, being a journalist, that I could completely understand. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a bit like what we were saying with, you know, if you've, done theatre and being around those people then you'll read the appeal with an extra layer and for me there was an extra layer of understanding to Amanda's character as well of being so obsessed with something that it does become everything you think about not that I've ever done anything as big as that but when I so I did a true crime podcast and when I was doing that especially towards the end as I was writing it I get into the, and I don't know if you get like this with your books as well. I do get into a bit where I'm like, I just need to keep writing this. Otherwise, like it's just all that's in your brain, everything that you want to say and everything you want to do. And it's all you want to work on. And so I could really understand Amanda's character of like, she is obsessed with this. And I think too, having read books like I'll Be Gone in the Dark, you really do understand why people might feel that way and um so yeah for me the Alpen Angels I was just absolutely in love and I'm a little bit devastated that we have to wait until September next year to to read your next book because oh. that sounds amazing oh I know it's such a long time it'll soon go it'll soon go it'll, it'll go. go it'll go it'll go very quickly but um <laughs> it's always so great to have a little a little taste again and it but yeah reading this I was like I think I need to go back and read more. like I just your writing style is so engaging as well and this I I do think that there's something nice about reading a mystery over like autumn, winter, because, you know, the weather's really bad or whatever, and you can literally just curl up and get lost in a book. And it's Isn't it lovely to have a short book as well? (laughs) Reading a short book is so good. You can really whiz through it so quickly. I mean, The Christmas Appeal, you can... You can read it and then give it away as a present. <laughs> you know, I, I, I shouldn't really. Um, no, you, know, you should say definitely that, buy two you... copies, guys. Yeah, <laughs> two co- yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, so, it's a perfect it's so, stocking filler. It's so good to have like a little a little Christmas story as well, like a full size novel. You yeah. know, obviously people like reading on holidays and things like that. But mm. yeah, I love a little Christmas book that you're sort of reading. You know in that sort of fit when you first got time off. You know, only a few days before Christmas or a few days after. And everything's just kind of crazy. And when you've got like five minutes and you're in like a little Christmas story, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It reflects the season, doesn't yeah. it? That makes sure. Because there's a lot of sort of kind of nostalgia and warmth about Christmas. Yeah. And I think if you read, if you, it reinforces that. If you read about Christmas mm. and read about other people celebrating Christmas, it kind of reinforces your own 
sense of coziness and nostalgia. Yeah. And congratulations too on having your books moved because like that that autumn sort of that autumn time slot is or time slot. That autumn publishing slot is such a big deal over here. Like that's when like Richard Osman's published yep. and all that sort of stuff. That's amazing to know that you're like in the in the bi- in the big <laughs> in players the big now. <laughs> yeah, you're in the big month. Absolutely. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah. The pre-Christmas um yeah, it's yeah, so exciting. Um, and yeah. so can you tell us anything at all about your next book? Maybe, you know, maybe if there's any true oh, crime too, recommendations that away. could, you know, get us get us in the, in the mood, get us excited. What sort of stuff did you use to research it? Well, the examiner, again, something quite different. It's It opens with an examiner, a university examiner, telling us that uh, he's just read the coursework and final essays from a small group master's degree course. And he thinks one of the students died and the rest are covering it up. But he's not sure. So he said, can you read and work out what happened, whether something happened on this course or nothing happened on this course? We start reading the coursework for a year-long MA in multimedia art. So it's um, mostly mature students who are coming together to do this course. And there's only six of them. So they're thrown together in a very claustrophobic environment. So we have to work out what happened on that course. I think that's about all I can say. That's so cool. Um, Oh, so now you're going into the dark academia (laughs) stuff as well. Dark (laughs) academia. Absolutely. Yep, I can't say any more. To give, but yeah, dark academia really, really. Uh, oh, well, that is a very form. so yeah, it's quite different. Sneak it's peek. different again. That's so, oh, I'm so. Excited but again, it's multimedia. It. Yeah, it's multimedia. Wonderful. So we've got their coursework. We've got their long essays, their final essay that they write, and we've got some of their um, internet messaging that the university has a very old-fashioned intranet that they're encouraged to use. (laughs) Yeah. Because they're encouraged to use it because the university um, wants to protect people from bullying and various things, so it says use the intranet. So they've got this glitchy um, intranet to use. So we got their messages as well. Um, I can't wait. That's going to be... (laughs) It was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. How do you feel about, like, obviously one of the quotes... um, on the on the front of the Christmas appeal is Agatha Christie for the twenty first century. How do you feel about comparisons wow. like that as well with your with your? Oh work? my goodness! I, I'm absolutely delighted and flattered, and I'm sure um, she's turning in her grave. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon she'd love like it. the Maybe appeal. Maybe it's my dress sense. No, she'd love the appeal. Maybe we both liked long skirts. You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, I'm really really flattered. I don't know. Is it true? Is it true? And I'm not sure. I would I would love it to be true. Because um, she was amazing. I mean, she was an astonishing writer who continued, not only wrote prolifically, she continued reinventing her genre mm. throughout her writing career, many, many years, many, many books. And she could always come up with something new and something different. So, I, you know, if I can aspire to that, hopefully you know, I won't <laughs> do too badly. But, yeah, I'm very, very flattered and humbled to be compared to her at all. And like, how does it feel as well? Like, obviously, you, you mentioned at the start that you'd spent a lot of time working on screenwriting, and you were sort of thinking, like, oh god, like this isn't this isn't going to happen. And then to have, you know, the best-selling debut book of twenty twenty-one, to have books that become instant bestsellers, to have such amazing praise for your work, which is genuinely wonderful. Like, 
how how do you feel then like obviously you didn't exp- you didn't see this coming obviously because you're working on screenwriting but how does it feel after all that time you've sort of discovered this new thing and suddenly you know it's all just sort of not just happened because you've put so much work into it and all your screenwriting years have added up but yeah how does it feel to <laughs> to have this success wow. in your Goodness. author era as it were yeah <laughs> i i would say it's like I would liken it to having unrequited love suddenly return. It's like being in love with someone who you don't think loves you and they seem to reject you, but then something happens and they they do love you after all. And so it's like that. It's like a weight being taken off one's shoulders. To be read as a writer is is one thing. It's one privilege. But to to be enjoyed as a writer and for people to want to read more of what you write, that's the ultimate dream really is this a dream come true all of this mm-hmm. it's wonderful it's like a weight off my shoulders because those years of writing with no no one reading or appreciating what I wrote was, was terrible it's awful you know I went through some very dark times over that period and, and I went through them I got to the point where I felt that it didn't matter if as long as I was writing I could write and express myself through these stories did it matter whether people were reading them so when they did and they did appreciate them, it was absolutely the cherry on the cake of, of my entire life. And I'm not understating, I don't want to overstate that at all, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's absolutely fabulous. And, um, you know, I, I can't even believe it myself. You know, when I, I, I see my books on an advert, which I've been looking around the, the rail network recently to see um, adverts for the Aberton Angels, and when I see um, reviews of my books, when I see people reading my books that's just it's I I could never have guessed this would happen at all but I'm so grateful that it has and uh, and I'm very mindful it could it could end tomorrow but I've I've had it and I've done it and it's been wonderful enjoying it while it lasts oh that's so lovely (laughs) that's so so beautiful yeah that's so lovely yeah I think that's all our we've we've grilled you (laughs) all our questions oh it's been a pleasure it's been lovely speaking to you it's been wonderful and thank you so much for reading my my books and and loving them and enjoying them and recommending them honestly the pleasure is all ours yeah really is so where can people find and follow you online they can follow me on um x yeah. Formerly Twitter. <laughs> um, I'm I'm at Janice Hallett, two L's, two T's, uh, there, or on Instagram, which um, I, t- I tend to put pictures on Instagram, and then once I've posted them, I realise that the, the salient thing in the picture has been cut in half. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not brilliant at, at Instagram. But you can find me on Instagram um, at Janice.Hallett. So they're my two main um, social media, and I'm, I'm on them far more than I should be. So you're, you know, if you, if you want to, t- to tweet me... Yeah. Or Instagram me, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll reply. <laughs> yeah, classic, classic writers. Wonderful. Thank you so <laughs> much for joining us. Honestly, absolute delight to get to ask you all these burning questions that I had every time I was reading your books going, how does she do it? Um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad I finally convinced Caitlin to uh, oh, me too. podcast. Um, yeah. Also, oh, I'm so, it's I, been a total pleasure. I got so excited when I was like, oh my gosh, Caitlin, we can have Janice on this season of the podcast because of the Christmas because appeal. Because the Christmas Imagine appeal. Imagine if we had to wait so until good. the end of next year. Oh, no, unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> so Thank you so much. Oh, how sweet. Thank you for listening to Better Words. 
You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. 